have the heart to say it, but I was like, I think Houston is spelled wrong. Oh. Yeah. And 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 uh, I didn't know what to say. But usually, when that happens, there's a there's someone that always wants to remind you that there was a, a slight spelling yeah. error. And every time well, I read, them, but when you read those, do you read it with that kind of like snarky voice, even though they might not be trying to be snarky? I read it fast, and it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to our bi-monthly stream with our good friends, Matt and David over at Left Reckoning. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit like, subscribe, and don't forget to ring that notification bell so you're alerted whenever we go live. Also, if you're watching on the Left Reckoning channel, we TIR a like in the sub. If you're watching on TIR, go give LR a like in the sub. That simple passive gesture goes a long way in the support of independent left media. Also, after the show, if you're a patron here on TIR, we have our man on the streets in Latin America, Camilo Gomez. It's going to break down what the hell is going on in Peru. It seems like it's a little while ago that Pedro Castillo was everyone's favorite leftist leader. Now he's out of office. And according to my conversations with Camilo, there is growing support of the right wing regime in the more rural areas of the country. We are going to get into the weeds with Camilo on that. We might open up the phone lines. I'm not sure because Camilo has a lot to cover uh, in the amount of time we have. It's a little later for him over there in Lima. For those that are subscribers and patrons, thank you for your continued support. Uh, that support is the fuel in the engine of the TIR machine. If you'd like to wear your support, let the people know with TIR merch. And who better to help plug this merch than the headless, faceless voice of reason and Vanna White of Merch Peddling, him to sign. Hello. Yeah, you got to get this. The gold actually does match your Tim's too. Yeah, Initially, so I was against it. See, but, the gold is dope. I don't know what you're tripping on. The gold is dope. It does match your Tim's. The wheat colored ones. 
original flavor Tim's. Your original, it matches your Anglo pessimism. Ooh. Yes. Uh huh. And, and who doesn't We've want got Pascal? With Pascal. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe uh, this was captured on film. He actually <laughs> smiled and and we caught it. <laughs> and I can't uh, believe it actually made it on something. I know. You can get your cute snuggly This is Revolution t-shirt with Pascal's smiling face on it. So you can look cheat up like Jason Jason Miles. Right? I had my also. That was a pre-record we did that for. But if you would like to be a part of what we do here at TIR, have access to champagne rooms past and present, come join us for movie night. Be a part of the Mau Mau Hour with Pascal Robert and, and conversate with him on the spot. There's only one way to do it, and that is become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. It's all yours. Now, we have such an info-packed show. I spent a good amount of my day reading everybody's stuff and trying to take good chunks from these articles. But thank God, they're all that long. <laughs> Let me first and foremost bring in my co-host, my homie, my dog. He is the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings Jason Miles. How are you? What's happening, man? Oh, man, too much. Too much is happening. I was trying to stay out of the news loop, and then everybody sent me these stories. I will say I was probably the angriest at Matt's because I didn't know about that. Um, that kind of shocked me. Speaking of Matt, let's bring in David. David Griscom. <laughs> <laughs> Because of you, David, Texas Chainsaw oh, There Massacre. you go. There you go. Repping. Um, my first time in Tumball, Texas, which you probably don't know where it is, and that's totally fine. It reminded me of this movie, and I was like, oh, that shit's real. Yeah. <laughs> Texas has some frightening locations. That's also the first time uh, I was at a venue. I was tour managing a band. And it was the first time for all of us. I don't know how common this is uh, in Austin, David. But uh, the first warning sign to me is always when there's a don't bring your guns in the club sign. <laughs> yeah. And well, then, when was this? This was two. I will never forget this. This was the fall of 2009. We walk into this club and it had a stripper pole mm. on the stage where the bands played. And we were like oh this is going to be a fun ass show right like what are we going to do and you know and so there's you know people are gathering in for the for the show and before the show's about to start um the music stops and the owner of the the bar club gets gets on a microphone and he goes i have to tell you the rules of the club now i won't say what the rules were exactly because you guys are going to think i'm making it up and i'm gonna get all kinds of misogynistic comments can't get it but anyway you couldn't mess around in the stripper pole but after he's done reciting the rules of what's going to get you kicked out 
an American flag slowly lowered. Oh yeah. <laughs> and the national anthem played. Oh, did you stand? I hope. We were because you know where you're standing, you're at the club bar, so we're all standing. We're like, this is we are so frightened. <laughs> but uh that that is forever going to be yeah. how I see Texas as a whole. <laughs> no matter awesome. what they do in Austin. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Speaking of Austin, it's my favorite North Dakotan. Please welcome Matt Leck. Hello, everybody. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm sorry I had such a long article, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's why I'm last. No, I, I actually do. I read the links, the hyperlinks that are in articles. So, um, oh, yeah. right. Um, I can I can ask one of those uh, questions like, but what about that? Right? I can dick cavit the situation. So I'm prepared to dick cavit the shit out of this situation. Well, well, we all know what that means. <laughs> oh, that's right. You know, oh, I forgot. My mom's a big dick cavit fan, so I'm, I'm I have some notion of who dick cavit. <laughs> That that I'm saying I'm I'm announcing my my old age. <laughs> Pascal and I are no Dick Cavett. Pascal's a big Dick Cavett fan, by the way. Dick Cavett has some great uh, old videos on YouTube that you can watch mm-hmm. if oh, you want to check out. He was really like back in the day when you thought liberals were good. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I like I when like he would have you know, when you have liberal fights on the Dick Cavett show, that was like the I best. Know. He was entertaining, but I have to admit that I was a fan of uh, what's my man's name? The guy from Yale wrote the book God is Dead. Um, William Whatever F. Buckley he used to be a William F. Buckley. Oh, William Buckley mm. got oh, him you... out at Yale, yeah, got him oh. out of Yale. Not God is dead. Where, where, where is he from again to have that weird accent? He was originally from South Carolina, but it was weird because he had like a totally like New England accent. <laughs> David, David oh, I, I, just, I, I had not heard that before. I was surprised. I thought I, yeah, I, I was just... like, what? And he was Man. Catholic too. Yeah, those are weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, like, like Catholic South, South Carolinians is like a very particular kind of character. Wait, was well, he really? It's not saying Jefferson Davis, know, right? If we're right about this, no, he was um, Jefferson Davis. Con- 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 was the Pope? I can't remember the Pope during the Civil War, um, but was like very friendly towards the Confederacy and um, gave sent Jefferson Davis after the war when he was imprisoned or whatever a crown of thorns, um, and privately. Uh, apparently Jefferson Davis had said that he was interested in, in converting to Catholicism, but I don't think he got around to it. I think he did. Well, Oscar Wilde, we, if we were around a hundred years, whatever years ago, uh, Oscar Wilde did a, you know, was speaking around the States and he visited and ate uh, dinner with uh, Jefferson Davis and Jefferson Davis. Um, and it talked about the Catholicism thing. And Jefferson Davis was really awkward because he was around such an effeminate man and there was uh, and there was rumors that he sort of like disguised himself as a woman to uh, flee the Union Army during the Civil War. So that was a very touchy subject for him. Mm. Also, just so we're getting our facts straight, I pull up the Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Buckley um, was born to a, a Texas-born lawyer in New York City, oh. and his mom's okay. from New Orleans. 
So yeah, that explains it. That probably explains the weird <laughs> accent. Yeah. They, they, it's called a mid-Atlantic. I watched the whole thing on it. It's called a mid-Atlantic accent, and it was kind of the preferred way of speaking in a certain era. And he just really held on to it in a kind of make America great again kind of way. Um, I, I appreciate it. I, I, it was, I you know, his the debate with him and Noam Chomsky is classic. Mm. I mean, he's got so many classic ones. I think Baldwin. the one with him and Christopher Hitchens was really good in the That was a good one. The one with him and Baldwin is pretty good. It's really good. Oh. Yeah, that one's great. That's the best. Baldwin and who was the white guy Baldwin was on with with on Dick Cavett? Um, he was a philosopher. I forgot yeah. his name. Yeah. Anyway, look, that's enough about that. We'll we'll get into that <laughs> later. We'll get into that later. We have a lot to cover. Matt, you wanted to discuss the silent indoctrination of high schoolers in JROTC programs throughout the country actually hold yeah on. before i before we bring this in i i uh, feel bad for some reason m2 song needs two intros so please welcome the producer uh, again <laughs> m2 song hello hello i'm just saying it doesn't explain anything for new people i've seen people say who's that woman what's that woman's voice <laughs> Look, they're going to have to deal with the fact that we don't allow skirts on the show. Oh, oh right. We're just going to have to deal with the seen but not heard aspect of what we do here. <laughs> Jesus. Terrible. It's a boys club. Clearly. Yeah, man. <laughs> I'm going to get kicked in the testicles in New York. But, uh, <laughs> Matt, from your piece of the New York Times... JROTC programs taught by military veterans at some 3,500 high schools across the country are supposed to be elective, and the Pentagon has said that requiring students to take them goes against its guidelines, but the New York Times found that thousands of public school students were being funneled into classes without ever have being, have chosen them, either as an explicit requirement or by being automatically enrolled. A review of JROTC enrollment data collected from more than 200 public records requests showed that dozens of schools have made the program mandatory or steered more than 75% of students in a single grade into the class, including schools in Detroit, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Oklahoma City, in Mobile, Alabama. A vast majority of the schools with those high enrollment numbers were attended by a large proportion of non-white students and those from low-income households, the Times found. Matt, what the hell is going on with this indoctrination into the armed forces? Yeah, I mean, it's always wild to me the way the right sort of projects certain panics onto, uh, you know, and, and uses it to basically stoke um, fear. And then there's actually things to be super concerned about with uh, the things that your kids are being subjected to in school. I don't know if you can share this for me, Jason. There's this article sure. here. Thousands of teens being pushed, as Jason said, in the military's junior ROTC. Um, and I believe he, uh, yeah, he read that part. Um, JRT uh, OTC classes, which offer instructions in a wide range of topics, including leadership, civic value. I mean, 
I'll, 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 I guess I'll, I'll hold my scoffing off before I finish reading it. Including leadership, civic values, weapons handling, and mm. financial literacy have provided the military with a valuable way to interact with teenagers at a time when it has faced its most serious recruiting challenges since the end of the Vietnam War. While Pentagon officials have long insisted that JROTC is not a recruiting school. I mean, can we just stop? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> No, nothing to see here. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Like, and we've all, I guess, taken that because I, what is it? It's just like fun just to let off some steam. Um, <laughs> have long insisted that JROTC is not a recruiting tool. They have openly discussed expanding the $400 million a year program, whose size has already tripled since the 1970s as a way of drawing more young people into military service. The Army says 44% of all soldiers who entered its ranks in recent years came from a school that offered JROTC. Schools have offered a financial, schools also have a financial incentive to push students into the program. This is where it gets really sick and how you look at like the way our schools are being underfunded or have been structurally underfunded and the solutions. I mean, DeSantis has talked about making up for uh, teacher shortages by putting vets in. The military subsidizes instructor salary while requiring students to maintain a certain level of enrollment in order to keep the program. The states that have allowed, so there's why kids are all of a sudden seeing, well, I'm enrolled in JROTC. What's, what classes do you have on your junior year, senior year schedule? I was, I would say like my senior year, Last semester, I was doing guitar, swimming class, uh, and maybe like uh, civics or something like that. Um, wow! In the space that they have allowed public schools, badass. It was awesome. We had it. It was. I was very lucky. <laughs> All that oil school. money. I mean, that was honest even before it, but uh, um, now it's now they have a new school. That school is old. But anyway, in the stu- in the states that have allowed GROTC to be used as an alternative graduation credit, some schools appear to have saved money by using the course as an alternative to hiring more teachers in subjects such as physical education and wellness. But and then uh, later, in some cases, parents who discovered that their children had been enrolled in the military-sponsored training have struggled to pull them out of classes. A Mr. Maya, whose daughter was put. A- against her will into a class in Fort Myers, met with a series of school officials while trying to get his daughter out. He said he supported the military, his sister is in the Navy, but was outraged that his daughter was being forced into the program. The school let his daughter out of the class, he said, only after he complained that an instructor had grabbed her by the shoulders during an exercise. Incident school officials did not dispute... Um... <laughs> on, um, uh, did not dispute... Uh, when they noted in a response to the Times that they had ultimately allowed the girl to drop the class. So she was grabbed in this class that she was enrolled in against her will, but like we let her out of it. And I mean, it's pretty sick. I, I don't know how you guys, like if you were exposed to the military, what if how the extent you were recruited. I almost joined. I was a kid who asked uh, to like the guy for more information. I had friends who joined uh, the reserves. Um, and... Like to the point where they called me like a decade later saying, hey, remember you told us you might have some interest in joining the military? And honestly, it was like, there's one time I came home, I was, I was like graduated from college. And he's like, there's still stuff, you know, we can come in, you got a uh, student loan debt, you can write for our paper and that sort of thing. Wow. And honestly, like, wow. I mean, I'm glad I jo- chose to go to college instead. And like, the reason I, I ultimately decided against it because I was developing a sort of anti-war because of the Iraq war politics, but like fucking Jarhead gassed me up and a lot of like the different sort of cultural sort of things like made me think maybe this is a way to get out of North Dakota. Uh, and uh, I mean, I 
that because that seemed as realistic to me as as college because neither my parents went to college either so like both of them were complete unknowns i just know i wanted to get out of the state basically so i'm just curious what you guys is uh, if you had any uh um uh experience with this sort of stuff just recruiters at the at my local uh shopping mall because it was in there was mm. the black mall so they they put me in jrotc against my will Are you being uh, serious? No i didn't i didn't i didn't uh i i got out of it but uh like yeah. Gomer Pyle or no they they put me in there i was supposed to do weightlifting um you know for my like you know whatever um and, uh, you know, they messed up my scheduling and they put me in for the, they put me in like 20 other people into the weightlifting, um, during the football block, like during football season, they have a block, which is just the football team. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And they try to put us all in JROTC. And I would like to say that I, I, you know, I didn't want to be in JROTC out of some like bold anti-war stance. It was just because it's filled with nerds. Yeah. Um, hey, that that's a good sign. I feel like, <laughs> but I mean, like, um, yeah, I mean, like the, the ROTC stuff is is nuts. I mean, the recruiting in high school is crazy. I mean, I had a similar experience to you, Matt. Like, I, I signed, you know, I I tried to sign up before I was eligible, so they they called me when I you know uh, turned seventeen, and you know I, I said I don't think so, and blah blah blah. And then they called me again when I was like twenty two, and I had this bizarre conversation with a recruiter <laughs> who was saying. You know, call me, but it's like, oh, would you like to talk about like your opportunities in the U.S. military? And it's like, not really. And he goes, look, I know you got a lot going on. You got that kid you got to take care of and the wife and all, which I did not have a kid. I was not married. It was just, and I don't know, maybe the guy had the wrong nose or I think more likely than not, they're just hoping to like get somebody who's hit right. Yeah. Yeah. You could probably get a good, I mean, especially knowing where I was, went to high school, like not a bad, you know, guess to just sort of throw out things like that at that age for young men. I mean, it's, 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 it's super nasty stuff. And I think, um, apart from the military recruiting stuff, Matt, like it's the underfunding of schools. I think that's so nasty about this where it's like, we overfund our military so much that they actually are going into our underfunded schools and trying to utilize the budget that they have to try to push schools to sort of model themselves in a way that they would like to see them. Does this also potentially facilitate even a more egregious type of poverty draft for students who are kind of economically uh, precarious in high school who, you know, if they're introduced to the military as the only valid option for their financial situation, they end up just kind of like signing up upon graduation and get sucked in. And of course, we know that there is a kind of correlation between military service and becoming kind of politically reactionary. So it also becomes like a feeder school for, for people to kind of develop potentially right-wing kind of politics. Oh, yeah. not, not, not that that's always the case, because we have comrades who've been on our show who are from the military who have mm-hmm. solid left politics, but there is there does tend to be a spillover. Uh, statistics do show that the, the, the military does in, increase a certain kind of right-wing tendency in those who have served. So it kind of works to facilitate the worst for our kind of politics and also on a class and economic level as well. It's almost kind of parasitic the way they orchestrate this. Hmm. I mean, the article went on to say that the, the classes are filled with like historical inaccuracies in their teaching as well, which oh, you can imagine. Master Chief just... at, at our high school is not the brightest bulb. You know, I can't imagine learning. <laughs> he told you that you had a kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dave was like, I don't have a kid. I got your hand up 
Wait, wait, can, wait. can I tell a quick story too? Um, you know, so in uh, when I did go to college, um, you know, I was like a, a lefty, all that kind of stuff. And towards the end of school, my junior, senior year, I realized that the student government at the college I went to, American University, has like a massive budget, like $750,000 that they have a lot of discretion over. Mm-hmm. And they were literally just using that to pay like Anderson Cooper a speaker's fee, right? Which I found to be just egregious. Like, let's just like put that in like a lottery system for textbooks or something. Was <laughs> So like, anyways, no one runs, no one cares about student government in college for the most part. Um, so me and a bunch of my friends like all ran and we tried to take over the student government to just like fuck with the budget. And we got like a Joe Biden situation where it was like 50 50. Um, and we were up against like the dweebiest like freshmen wearing their little suits and like trying to pretend to be, you know, in like the actual United States Congress. And <laughs> the first day this kid comes in and just like I'm just telling you, it's like it was play acting because like they tried to do this thing where like I support the military. And what did they want to do? They wanted to do stuff for ROTC, which they called ROTC. I've never heard that um, before. Um, And like, oh, ROTC, we love our people. By the way, these people also aren't in the military um, (laughs) either, right? He's like, they sacrifice. It's like they're in a club, man. And like they were trying to give them special (laughs) treatment, like athletes, so that they could get special schedules. And like the first thing I was I did when I was elected to our student government was just fight tooth and nail this like special preferential like sign up for ROTC kids, and I ended up beating it at the end. We didn't have the votes to stop it, but I put an amendment that um, and got that passed that gave everybody early um, early class signups, <laughs> basically you know <laughs> undermining the entire point of it. Anyway, wow! I just so remember this parliamentary. You know, I know. Yeah, right? you went longer lunch periods, huh? I mean, I could. There's some stories. The funniest thing too is the we had like numbers to win, but it was all like juniors and seniors who also didn't really give a shit. And you had to be there physically. And it's just like I'd throw a party on Saturday and would wipe out like the central committee because like half the people were too hungover to show up to vote the next day. <laughs> it was a. <laughs> it it does feel a little like baby fascism. Oh yeah. yeah um can you know yeah and and to and to think that when i'm reading the articles like detroit la (laughs) mobile like oh all these poor ass cities with you know ravaged industrial sectors um a a growing gentrifying class that is you know pushing the people that have been there further and further to the hinterlands of of said uh of said areas so Mm -hmm. um to be able to have someone talk about a job retiring at 40 which is uh you know unheard of to a 17 18 year old kid mm-hmm. um, especially one that uh, has children like david get your hand off my penis <laughs> my god david chad david versus virgin rotsy <laughs> they were no match they weren't ready for fucking david and his nerds kids. ever <laughs> I know you got the kids and your and your ma's farm is, is about to get what are you talking about man <laughs> that dropped me off this morning dude <laughs> and on top of this kid should I pull out way early now Pascal you want to talk about Canada placing economic sanctions, sanctions on Haiti Canada our neighbors to the north are not as nice and welcoming as people would like to think they are. Uh, from an article in Reuters, the sanctions add to others already imposed by Ottawa, including 
on three Haitian politicians in November and are intended to put pressure on those responsible for the ongoing violence and instability in Haiti. The United States on Friday imposed sanctions on a current and former Haitian senator accusing the two politicians of engaging in drug trafficking activities. Haitian gangs in September created a humanitarian crisis by blocking the entrance to a fuel terminal leading to shortages of gasoline and diesel that halted most economic activity just as the country reported a renewed outbreak of cholera. Pascal, how are these sanctions that Canada is placing on Haiti affecting Haiti, and are they even justified? Well, the thing that's interesting is that this, the, the sanctions aren't particularly being placed on Haiti as a country. The sanctions are being placed on individuals, particularly who are participating, who are thought to be funding some of the rather illegal and dubious activity of the gangs and some of the drug cartels that have been existing in Haiti uh, as a result of the assassination of, of President Jovenel Moise that took place last year. What is the most uh, profound about this article and this revelation about what Canada is doing is that Canada is going after three individuals who are usually considered almost beyond reproach in Haitian civil society, which make war three individuals who are part of the Haitian oligarchy. Now, for those of you who do not know, Haiti, like most countries overall, have an oligarchy who disproportionately control large portions of the wealth of the country. Some say over 85, some say over 90%. The oligarchy in Haiti, what makes them particularly distinct is that they are not really ethnically Haitian in their origins. Many of them have Middle Eastern or European backgrounds, and they actually tend to use their ethnic or racial difference to justify maintaining a kind of buffer status between themselves and the majority of the black population of the country. And what is also interesting is that they tend to be the ones that are used by the United States to facilitate the economic negotiations in terms of the well-being of the country, the future direction of the planning of political uh, direction of the country, and they also finance political campaigns of future of past presidents. And they also engage in activities to sponsor coup d'etats against administrations that they find unfriendly to their goals and aspirations. So what is interesting is that usually what we find is that the core group or the consortium of embassies, including the United States and European powers that have had an antagonistic relationship with Haiti, particularly since the ouster of uh, Haitian President Gilbert Aristide, are usually working in consortium with these uh, oligarchs, as opposed to trying to uh, antagonize them. But what is particularly surprising now is that Canada, one of the members of the core groups, is actually putting sanctions against three of the main Haitian oligarchs. Bijou is one of them, uh, uh, Deeb is another one, and another one is Al-Sharif. They're three of the major, major oligarchs in Haiti and, change, and basically alleging that they have been sponsoring large amounts of the gang activity. This is actually something that is a big deal because when you usually see coverage of Haiti in the media, they will not even mention the names of the oligarch families in the media. You rarely hear discussion of these individuals because you have to realize most of these guys have American passports or European passports. They're able to function outside of Haiti. They travel to the United States. Most of them have residences in Florida or other parts of the United States. So they actually work and oftentimes they actually testify before the United States Congress on issues of politics and trade with Haiti. But to see 
that the actual Canadian government is taking effort to go against these individuals who usually work in tandem with international actors to undermine the political aspirations of the domestication people tells me that there's a twisting in the turning in the wind of the political direction. And it's possible that the core group of countries of Western powers that usually use these oligarchs to undermine Haitian sovereignty are realizing that the jig is up. And unless they find a way to actually repair the situation that's in the country, they might have to take a couple of these guys down, which would be unprecedented in terms of Haitian history. Toussaint, do you have something to add to that since you're Haitian? Wow. Okay. <laughs> sense of Haitian. I mean, Matt and Dave could have something to say that they're dying to get out. Uh, I, someone on Twitter told me that, that uh, people that aren't black can't talk about black stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Twitter told me. No? <laughs> Am I reading the manual wrong? <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Oh. Well, I... Oh, see, look, look at me. I'm, uh, I'm not letting you speak. <laughs> and, and you're not being racist. You're being sexist. So you know. Yeah. <laughs> look at that. You gotta switch it up. <laughs> there you go. There's, there's a difference. Well, I uh, do think it's interesting that they're going. They're naming names and they're going after these elites because, yeah, it's true. No one ever goes after the elites. They're, they are, they too are, are nameless and faceless, and, and, um. No one ever holds them accountable for anything. I mean, this would be the equivalent of like like a foreign country trying to go after the Koch brothers. Like you, you would never <laughs> hear. You couldn't imagine something like that. Do you, Do you think there's anything to to say about a U.S. relationship with Canada that might be playing into this? In the sense of Canada, you know, wanting to chart its own path. That's a very good point because I would be a little bit more impressed if the United States was be, be was was the country that was trying mm-hmm. to sanction these individuals because the United States is the one that actually has had a much more mm-hmm. let's say uh, inter interwoven relationship with them and part of me is saying well it's only Canada how much muscle is Canada going to have to flex against these guys and will Canada back down if the United States eventually says okay this is cute and everything but these are our people. You might, you, you better, you might want to kind of like back off. So I haven't really, really concluded whether or not is Canada has a very large Haitian population, particularly in Quebec. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, are they trying to respond to different political pressure amongst their Haitian population in Canada that's kind of forcing them to go after these individuals? So perhaps they have more or different internal domestic pressure that's forcing them to res- forcing them to respond to a phenomenon that's not existing in the United States. That's one of my that would be one of my uh, suspicions as to why the Canadians are going on their own against these oligarchs. Mm-hmm. You're quiet, Matt. David and I, well, mainly me, I talked about the Kennedy assassination uh, a lot uh, this week. And I'm like just reading these stories of, uh, of the Moise assassination and all we all that's just open. And it's not like some wacky researchers who are like, you know, <laughs> writing endless amount of letters to government agencies. It's CNN. You know, uh, Moise was killed last Wednesday in an operation that Haitian authorities say involved at least 28 people, many of them Colombian mercenaries hired through a Florida based security company. 
and it's like well florida-based like mercenaries is that's like jfk o'clock it's i i, I like, JFK what is like <laughs> like the way that we know all of this stuff and like is that sort of like forcing the hand of some of this or, or well i mean the thing is though and i've said this publicly and i'll say it again i mean some people may find it controversial is that no one assassinates a haitian president without the green light of the united states state department i'm sorry this doesn't, it doesn't happen how much knowledge did they have beforehand or how much did they participate in is questionable it's dubious maybe it was just, but well you know uh uh, uh uh there were one there's a former u.s ambassador as a matter of fact who uh, ryan gripped in a story on saying that one of the comments she made in a in a congressional investigation on Haiti about Jovenel Moise, she literally said, we've got to set him aside one way or the other and put in somebody who is more pliable to our demands. And this was like months before Moise was assassinated. Now, take that for what it will. I'm not saying that the smoking, that's a smoking gun to say that the U.S. was behind the assassination. But I just find it interesting that, you know, she was so cognizant of the the fact that this guy had to be put up, taken out taken out of the way for the United States to facilitate its own kind of motivations and machinations in the country, that it, it's kind of uh, interesting that you know within a couple of months of that statement, he's uh, axed. Mm -hmm. mm. Mm. Well, on that uh, sad note, David, you wanted to talk about your home state of Texas. Yeah. Um, something uh, I don't like to talk about very often, but uh, <laughs> well, if you if you read James, if you read James Foreman Jr.'s excellent work, locking up our own, decriminalizing marijuana has been part of the anti-incarceration language for about fifty years. Regardless of studies on the hippie lettuce, it's still a point of concern for pearl-clutching politicians in the conservative state of Texas. Is citizens would like to move out of the Stone Age and move into the Stone Age. <laughs> of legalization of cannabis. <laughs> but, and I wrote that. But what's stopping them? From an article in the Texas Tribune, the fight in several Texas cities to decriminalize marijuana has entered a new phase as some city leaders have rebuffed voter-approved rules that largely end criminal enforcement against having small amounts of the substance. Last month, residents in Denton, college town, San Marcos, also a college town, Colleen, Elgin, and Harker Heights overwhelmingly approved ballot measures that sought to ban arrests and citations for carrying less than four ounces of marijuana in most instances. They also approved new rules blocking cities from funding THC concentration tests, plus removing marijuana smell as a probable cause for search and seizure in most cases. Mm. Winning over voters was just half the battle. Since then, organizers behind the ballot questions in some cities have clashed with their city and county leaders who are tasked with putting the new laws in place, as well as law enforcement. Those officials have said the effort violates state law and hinders police officers. David, what is up with Texas? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> there's a few things, but um, I wanted to talk about this story because it it, it hits at a, at a few things. One, um, I think Ground Game Texas, the organization that pushed for these ballot initiatives, um, has been really smart in recognizing um, that in, in a moment where it seems like a lot of state level stuff is sort of foreclosed for progressives, um, doing things on the city and local level um, seem to be a way to get um, politics in the state more in line with with the folks. And if people are familiar with me, my writings for Jacobin and the stuff we do on Left Reckoning, um, you know, I always try to remind folks that 
you know, the narrative about Texas oftentimes misses the point. Um, there's a lot of voter depression in this state. There's a voter suppression, certainly. Um, but more importantly, uh, the ruling party and the ruling system in, in this place doesn't really reflect uh, the values of, of most uh, Texans uh, from everything from stuff like marijuana uh, two things like abortion, right? We have, an, you know, mm-hmm. an abortion ban effectively in this state. And it's something like 10, 15% of people support that, right? And, you know, you have to remember when you're doing politics here, even just thinking on a national level about Texas, um, that this is, is a place where democracy has been really foreclosed for folks. And I find ballot initiatives to be a really exciting way to get around that, not just in Texas, but a lot of other states are um, friend and 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 uh, one of my great teachers, uh, Luke Mayville, has been doing amazing work mm. in in Idaho. Um, but even there, right? You know, he makes the the gambit that you know, while this is a state that is dominated by Republicans on the st- on the state level, uh, people want Medicaid expansion, people want funding for their schools. So let's just take the questions to the people instead of having to you know go through the entire process of you know building um, you know political majorities in in the state house to get things done, and. Um, one of the things that Luke's experienced and we're seeing here is that um, the ballot initiative strategy is really exciting. And I'm not saying it's it's a bad one, but there's a second level where these governments are really willing to uh, b- try to throw out um, these results, even when they're overwhelming. Um, and I think it's exceptionally worrying in Texas, as I was just saying, that like this really is like a minority run system here um, in the sense that the people who run the state represent a minority interest and minority view in the state of Texas. And they're very willing to use whatever powers or, or abilities they have, even if they are just so clearly, you know, a slap in the face to any kind of conception of democracy or even just popular will. Um, and, you know, the fights here, you know, it's not the same in every one of these these areas, but it's just one of those things where I think, you um, um, I think, for example, like in Denton, I think they were able to to get it through. But there's questions, I believe, about like the city manager not trying to go along with it. In Harker mm-hmm. Heights, the city council basically threw away um, the results of the election, um, despite the fact that 60 percent of the people voted uh, to decriminalize um, marijuana. And um yeah, I mean, I think that like there's the narrative about Texas that it opens up um, one of these fundamental questions and tensions that we have in politics here, where our system is really um, undemocratic and is not only was designed to be so um, historically, um, because you do have these um, things in the Texas Constitution, like a weak governor and all these things that should be make the system, you know, in theory, maybe a little bit more representative, right? Because the legislature is supposed to have power. But after decades and decades of Republican control and just willingness on that side of the uh, you know political spectrum to just sort of, um, you know, play fast and loose with the rules, um, you know, we are in a really dangerous a moment. I think things like this, like you have to be able to one, try to mobilize to fight to make sure that the rule of, of the voters is respected. Um, but also there's a second level thing here to make the point about the real fundamental democracy problem we have here. Right. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of saying like, let's not make this political or ideological or whatever. Um, but this is one of those things where you can just make this neutral argument. Should people, if they make a decision, if the question is asked to the public, um, should that be something that's respected or should the opinions, you know, of a sheriff somewhere or a city manager um, or even a city council be able to deny the, the rule of, 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 of the people? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly frightening stuff. And I think, you know, on the second level, it's the question of, of ballot initiatives. And I don't have too much um, 
that I feel like adding right now. But if you're interested in this, we had a uh, Benjamin Case on the program uh, last week, Left Reckoning '96, uh, to talk about ballot initiatives because he's been studying this um, at Arizona State with uh, the Democracy Institute, I believe is the name. Um, uh, looking at ballot initiatives, particularly in the South, particularly in places like the Midwest and in these quote unquote red states as an opportunity um, for building opposition and, and more progressive politics, maybe more in line with like the, the will of the general population. Um, but he argues, and I think correctly, that like this is one of those things where it's like you should do it. It's not an argument that we shouldn't do it. But we have to remember that the ballot initiatives alone aren't going to be able to build a more authentic uh, politics. Because like if, if the strategy behind ballot initiatives is we have a broken democracy, we can use ballot initiatives to get some things in the meantime while we try to work our way out of this crisis. Uh, we should do it. I agree with that. You know, um, But it's not going to be something that's going to be able to build a more authentic politics on its own because it has to be mediated by the courts, by government officials who, as we're seeing right now, um, are very willing. Uh, to take positions that are very much out of line with the general population um, and, and the voting public in this state and all across the country. Matt, did you want to add something? Oh, I was just, uh, you know, a lot of talk and people sort of uh, promoting Ron DeSantis. Um, and I'm just saying I'm team Trump uh, 100%, um, even after the Trump cards uh, revelation. I, I think that was good, actually. Um, but, 65% of Florida voters approved Amendment 4, a constitutional amendment that automatically restored voting rights to most Floridians with past convictions who had completed the terms of their sentence. Shortly thereafter, in June 2019, Governor Ron DeSantis signed Senate Bill 7066 into law prohibiting returning citizens from voting unless they pay off certain legal financial obligations. And the other thing is, is about the Idaho stuff, they fucking came after Luke. Mm -hmm. Like, they tried mm -hmm. to get him for corruption stuff. And, like, I mean... Just for the crime of like expanding health uh, services to people. And I just want to be explicitly clear here, um, you know, because like I like, for example, Ground Game Texas, the organization that's been sort of pushing for these ballot initiatives. I think it's it's an incredibly smart strategy. They the three W's to win weed, wages and workers. Right. Has been the strategy <laughs> and they've been using ballot initiatives, local level stuff to try to build up um, a stronger grassroots progressive movement. I think that's the the strategy. So I just want to be clear that I'm not saying that like pushing for these things is, is wrongheaded. I actually think it's the right move, but it's just one of those things where it almost immediately gets hit um, with how undemocratic our system is in, in, in this place um, that I think, you know, it's, it's worth making these things big stories because they sometimes get sort of pushed to the back of the Texas Tribune on a Thursday afternoon and then nobody reads or thinks about them again. Um, and, you know, these are the kind of like fundamental crises uh, that that we're um, facing, I think, even more so than, you know, questions about um, the electability of certain candidates is that we have like a, a system that has like really fundamental um, broken mechanisms for providing democracy or, or public say into it. Yeah, I mean, in reading that piece, I definitely revisited, uh, I forget which chapter it is, in uh, James Foreman's Locking Up Our Own, where he discusses, uh, in 73, I believe it was, a study came out that the Nixon administration had commissioned to see how addictive marijuana was. And the study was like, it's not addictive. It's, you're mm. fine. And there was this, uh, it was a city council member that was trying to push to decriminalize marijuana and to, to just a fine. This was in 73. 
and he was uh, a white guy and he got pushback from the more what, what would you call him pascal kind of like the black nationalist contingent of the political machine that uh, said that marijuana was a gateway drug to heroin which was becoming a huge problem uh in uh urban dc and kind of throughout throughout the country and I don't know if you can make that same correlation now in 2022 that you could make 50 years ago in 1973 and have it hold water. So it's interesting that people are still trying to hold on to this kind of losing strategy of, uh, of, of uh, far right Christian values of abortion, marriage and, and drugs. Well, the, the marijuana thing, I think, here is like if you were to like just do a straight up poll and hopefully a vote um, <laughs> um <laughs> you know i think marijuana would be le- you could legalize marijuana in texas the problem is when we don't have statewide ballot initiatives so that's not an option you have to do a constitutional um amendment which would then go to the public for ratification but it has to go through the legislature which aren't interested in doing that and marijuana makes does a the lot- texas legislature only work like every like Every two, too? every two years. No, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my god! Which is also like a like it's awful. I think it. I, I love it in a kind of like this is just so insane and so local um, that like we have a state of what thirty four million people, one of the largest economies in the world, whose government only is able to govern um, every couple of years. But um, yeah, no, that's certainly a problem. But it's also marijuana makes a lot of money um, for rural sheriffs. In particular, like there are very notorious places like be smart if you have anything on you, particularly edibles, um, because in Texas, they they weigh them so you can get felony just for Damn. having a cookie or something like that. So yes. don't mess around with with uh, edibles here if you ever come to visit. Um, when I was in Dallas, all. eat them all. When, when I was in Dallas, I had friends who were pretty cavalier with like smoking on the street or ever walking around. We went yeah. to a suburb um, that, that to go to this party. And they turned the music entirely down and everyone was like looking for cops yeah. and like trying to like follow every single road uh, thing because of how they fuck. You. Well, you all know the Willie Nelson story, right? Mm-hmm. There's a famous Willie yeah. story where, of course, he gets pulled over by a cop and, you know, he's got a lot of weed <laughs> in, the, in the tour van. Um, I can't remember the town off the top of my head, um, but it's, it's somewhere um, west and they arrested him and it was just like, you're done amount of weed and um they let willie nelson play a benefit concert for the sheriff's office um and he did and that's how he got away from from those charges ah. um, which is a funny story i will say um but it's also horrible because most of the other people who are getting locked up for that thing don't have that option but again it goes back to what i'm saying it's like this is a lot less about morality and like a really great fundraising opportunity for small town Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, small county, poor parts of, of the state to be able to get money from people who are passing through. But uh, won't they marijuana. make more money on the tax benefit of having... What I'm saying is it's, it's like the sheriffs and the police who are lobbying to keep that yeah. system. Do you get I, what I mean? I, I get it. But look, I, I lived in... And the Republicans don't want to be the weed guy um, in, in parts of the state because the thing is, you got to remember, like Texas is a state that is 
um, growing more and more urban and the attitudes to, towards weed are very much in line with the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the ledge, while having, you know, obviously population aspects to it, is has like a very strong role um cohort to it which has different attitudes and those people have to deal with the more christian conservative mentality toward it which so it might not represent like a large amount of the population but it represents influential blocks for certain people who then become an influential block in the ledge but there's no i mean look no you can make so much money on taxing it in in this state are you kidding me yeah i think that that is the thing that does get mind-boggling because there is the republican argument for this thing now Let's tax it heavily and use it. For yeah, this is, I, I asked that question because I lived in Vegas for a short time and coming from the Bay Area to Vegas where I, when I left the Bay, I don't know what it is now. It was like a half pound was personal use mm-hmm. in, the, in the Bay Area um, and going to Las Vegas. It's totally illegal because alcohol is king. Right. Mm-hmm. And I never thought I'd see the day where there'd be dispensaries in in nevada and i never thought i'd see the day where there'd be dispensaries uh in louisiana another state mm-hmm. that again alcohol is is kind of king um mm. so it's interesting because because you you, you want to ask the question how much are you really making you know to your point about people passing through um and confiscating cash cars like what are you confiscating that's saying that this makes more sense than putting this into the municipal budget mm-hmm. where, you know, we can give you more money for fighting the real problem, which is, you know, no one's marijuana is just so ubiquitous at this point. You don't really hear about it to the same level that you heard about it before, even with violence around it. It's, I mean, it's just, it's just broken here. I mean, we're going to, I think we have something like a $30 billion budget windfall, which is insane. Most states are broke and they don't redistribute that money at the state level. The state has like completely stopped funding a lot of things that a state government should. And that requirement then goes on localities, um, which is why we have a lot of like really insane, like high taxes for a lot of things. Um, for most people, I mean, you, you pay less in taxes, even without having income tax here, unless you're somebody at the top tax bracket, um, you pay more taxes than like a typical wage earner in, in the California, for example, which is crazy to think about. Um, but like the other thing that's so funny, and I just, is worth bringing up since if we are talking about marijuana in Texas is they did legalize hemp. Um, so so they 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 legalized hemp but as as people who you know know more about the stuff than me know sometimes hard to tell the difference between the 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 plant that has um thc in it and doesn't so they have these really expensive uh, testing things that they have to utilize to be able to find out if you actually have an illegal drug or something that is legal to have on your person here and it's really expensive. And I don't know if this has changed, but a couple of years ago, they had like one machine in the state. <laughs> like after they first passed it, mm-hmm. they had like one machine in the state. It was really hard. So you had all these like, you know, district attorneys and local government officials being like, we just can't prosecute anyone for marijuana possession because it takes too long. I think they've, they've figured that out um, now. But there's, yeah, there's all these kind of weird, um, you know, gray areas, uh, you know, around um 
you know, around this thing now. It's, it's, it's completely absurd, but a lot of things in Texas politics are just completely absurd. And as Matt was saying, like the fact that the alleged doesn't meet also means that it's harder to pass something like this because these boys who have had a majority in, in the legislature for all these years, they have a short window of time where they can pass, you know, anti-trans hate bills and abortion mm-hmm. shit and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. <laughs> it takes a lot of energy um, to get something up on the floor of the ledge here. And uh, even if you might even have the Republican votes, like getting them to put that over, um, taking away funding for public schools, like might be a tough, uh, a tough fight. Well, I, and I, I do want to add to your Willie Nelson story. Um, uh, similar to the Frankfurt school. Uh, I'm a big student of the uh, Motley Crue school of philosophy. And they wrote a book. I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, the Motley Crue version of the Frankfurt School, The Dirt, um, where they all uh, pontificate on the 80s and the debauchery that was that era. And their manager has a chapter in the book where he got busted flying in literal tons of marijuana in the 80s. Literally tons. And he was the manager of, at the time, Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, Skid Row, and the Scorpions. Oh, and Bon Jovi. <laughs> in 1988. Why he in felt 88? in 88. Why he felt the need to fly in literal tons of marijuana, who knows. And they say it was marijuana. We 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 don't know. <laughs> to to get out of going to prison, much like Willie Nelson doing a benefit concert, he arranged to have the biggest music festival in the then soviet union <laughs> wow. called the moscow music peace festival with scorpions skid row <laughs> Motley crew and bon jovi that's pretty awesome well listen to uh on the coincidence of us talking about marijuana music and states like texas I do believe that today or yesterday is the 30th anniversary of the Chronic album by <laughs> Dr. Dre. All right. Wow. The record that changed the acceptance of marijuana. I'm, marijuana. I'm glad you said that. Let me tell really? you something. I theorize that the Chronic opened the door to marijuana usage to kids and younger people in places that mm. normally would not have experimented with it and normalized it in a way that it did not exist before. Because you remember, my generation, not that we didn't have people who smoked weed, but they were we were the say no to drugs, mm-hmm. Nancy Reagan generation, mm-hmm. where it was like, oh my God, you know, you're drugs, you gotta be crazy, do that. After the Chronic Man, I remember when I was in grad, I was in law school when that album came out. Cats in undergrad, grad school, just like, <laughs> well, you, you you know what I say that that's the record that really changes the way hip hop is looked as a as a lifestyle. Like gangster rap was fringe music, mm. much like mm. death metal or punk rock. Like you had to kind of be in a in a fringe scene. You could listen to it. What's really be about it was very different. When the chronic hit, they weren't necessarily killing people on every album. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I and and you know, Matt, 
Go back and listen to NWA's second record, which is Straight Outta Compton. Dr. Dre has his famous line, I don't smoke weed or cess. He has a whole point. stanza about how smoking weed causes brain damage on um, Express Yourself. Oh, yeah, I remember that being lame. So and I didn't <laughs> smoke weed yet. I mean, why is he saying that? Yeah, that, that's, that was... You got you, 89, 88, we're headed for self-destruction. 92, you know, ain't nothing but a gangster party. And uh, Where did Cheech and Chong play and all that? Fringe culture. Okay. That was like your, your old. That's who my parents, fringe. like yeah. my parents' go-to cultural reference for pot is Cheech and Chong. <laughs> That's so awesome. But you, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it's funny too. I mean, just if we're doing music stuff, like, um, you know, like, a lot of artists who like you think of as like really big and these are people folks probably won't know but like in like the texas country scene like guy clark terry allen doug som the texas tornadoes all those a lot of those people went out to california um Mm -hmm. because of the weed because it was getting so (laughs) difficult to to smoke weed in texas and they all end up coming back right that's the story is like you come back eventually but like you know there was an entire like there a lot of their like early playing days they were all in like uh la or san francisco or whatever for a few years but around because they didn't want to have to deal with getting locked up for smoking a little bit of weed when they were, you know, strumming along, playing their, their songs to 20 people. Uh, uh, also, before we, before we move on, before we move on and, and, and end this, the show, David, have you seen Tales from the Tour Bus? Yes, of course. Okay. okay. Mm. That might be the greatest, some of the greatest stories um, that you can ever hear about country music ever. On Tales from the Tour Bus. Mm-hmm. I, I was recently watching it. I, I sent it to my cousin. I have a, a younger cousin. She said, um, I'm watching this show about these two country music singers that were a couple. It's really interesting. And she means George and Tammy. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, you don't know who George Jones and Tammy Wynette are? <laughs> okay, <Hell> watch yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I sent her the George Jones uh, segment from tales from the tour bus if you guys anyone watching and listening to this show hasn't seen mike judge's tales from the tour bus it's, I don't it's really good it's really good oh the whalen you know the whalen jennings to- uh, story with george jones i don't oh, want to spoil funny. for anybody but it's so good yeah who was it was it johnny paycheck is the one that shot the guy i think so shut the- <laughs> I don't know if that's a time thing or anything but like it is funny like you hear all these stories it's like it seemed like a really small world um mm-hmm. you know like billy joe shaver i it'll take too long for me to tell the story if you all if y'all want to hear me talk about this shit if you like it <laughs> i used to do a segment on ben's show um on country music i i have i, I apologize to ben i can't remember what he was calling it but you can hear me talk about george jones billy joe shaver telling a lot of these stories but billy joe shaver like effectively like drove out to tennessee and like threatened the life of waylon jennings um, in, in order to write an album for him and there are so many stories like that and it's just like it's funny when you think about i don't know if it's just because i'm a coward and i don't think that those things are opportunity or times have really changed but a lot of these guys would have just been nobodies except that they were just like a little bit crazy at the right moment to like demand something and to fight if they didn't get it and uh, i feel like i mean um chris christopherson just really quick 
Chris Christopherson, the folks, you know, he was one of the highwaymen, very famous singer, one of my favorites. Also, radical leftist. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a mm-hmm. he has a song he played all the time called Sandinistas, um, which is like super radical lefty. He had been sending tapes to Johnny Cash for a long ass time and never got a response. He was in the um, National Guard and he drove, he flew his, hel- he knew where Johnny Cash lived. He just landed his helicopter on Johnny Cash's, in Johnny Cash's front yard and walked in and gave them the tape. And that's how uh, he ended up getting his first like big record deal. Just like, I don't know, not encouraging people to do shit like that, but I felt like you could get away <laughs> with that. Those, those people were, they're a different breed, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I think cats don't really realize that, you know, some of these dudes were stealing hubcaps. Or they got record deal, and that goes across to all early rock and roll and blues. Definitely, those those cats were doing a lot of pimping. Um, that those country, R and B, blues, rock and roll, those early years to me, it's all kind of the same genre. It's it's just slightly different, right? There's a drum beat that's a little different in country than the early rock Mm -hmm. and roll. If you go put on your pandora station which actually unlike spotify is designed to take what you're listening to and give you more suggestions mm-hmm. you will get um if you're listening to, to uh, like tammy wynette you will eventually get early uh, ray charles and that's and, cool uh, yeah. etta james and stuff like that because the music is so similar and, and a lot of those people just very fringy lifestyles it's also a time when the record labels really did run everything so people weren't making money so a lot of those stories to me are some of the most interesting um, in music because it's mm-hmm. not so debaucherous as it is. It's just they all become these crazy hood tales of <laughs> <laughs> no, really. Generous <laughs> getting a couple bucks. Just really, people should uh, go on YouTube and find uh, Ray Charles and Willie Nelson doing Seven Spanish Angels if you haven't. It's like one of the most amazing performances ever. And now I'm going to depress the shit out of everybody. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, to- <laughs> <laughs> On that high note, let me bring you right down, punching the testicles. Thank you, Matt and David, for coming on and joining us. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've been getting messages from people saying they really dig this crossover. We dig it, too. If you haven't done it yet, please hit like and subscribe and the notification bell so you're alerted when we go live. Also, go over and give the left reckoning guys a like. Uh, Again, I can't say enough how that small gesture goes a long way in the support of independent left media. Um, Also, uh, wherever you're watching or listening to them, there are links in the description to the live show that we'll be doing at the Cutting Room in New York City. We'll be taking our live show on the road. What we did in L.A., we'll be bringing it to New York with all new New York guests. So what better Christmas present for your leftist friend than a ticket to the show? Now that I plugged that, got that out of the way, let's uh, depress the show you. Before we go, I wanted to touch on something real quick that is a saying I see a lot in left spaces, something like this. There's more vacant houses than homeless people in this country. While that may be true, housing people can be a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare. Numerous agencies, nonprofit organizations, paperwork, sometimes non-cooperative people, and we can't forget political grandstanding. 
I'm not saying this to obfuscate the fact that as economic care grows, so does the number of the unhoused population. But what is to be done? Throw more money at the problem? Is it that simple? Or uh, is it that there is more money in funding think tanks to figure out what is to be done and coming back with futile solutions and saying, much like my dating life, it's complicated. <laughs> There's no better way to explain this complication than with the front page article I read in the LA Times. Some of you, like me, might be fans of the true crime genre. I understand that, uh, if not all, uh, most of it is use of force propaganda for law enforcement. Maybe I just like the dark drama. Anyway, some of you watching might remember the 2021 Netflix documentary on the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles that is smack dab in the middle of L.A. Skid Row. The hotel, pretty much since its inception, was a budget traveler's hotel. Then after the Great Depression became a bit of a place of refuge for the dispossessed, the Cecil is maybe most famous from that documentary for being the place that had what many an internet sleuth thought was a mysterious murder of traveling Canadian student Elisa Lamb. Uh, Matt and David, do you guys remember that? Or did you watch that? Doc? I do remember that. Uh, I I, can, I, can I spoil it or should people watch the documentary? Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. She was found in the uh, water tank at the top of the uh, uh, building. I don't know, did they ever figure out what like what prompted her to go up there? I can't remember, but it... uh, yeah, she had a manic episode and she just right. She took off her clothes and and the water tower happened to be open. And also, the Night Stalker had stayed there. The Night Stalker did stay there, and there was several murders. I think there was a murder on every floor. Um, <laughs> well, be thorough, I guess. <laughs> After land. Lamb went missing. Police leaked a video of Lamb acting strange in a hotel elevator, and the Cecil Hotel and its sore reputation became fodder for internet detectives and true crime buffs. But the Cecil in 2022 looks to serve a better purpose than the setting of a Ryan Murphy television series. The hotel, after being sold and going through a $100 million remodel, was set to be permanent supportive housing for the inhabitants of Skid Row. Thanks to COVID gutting the hotel industry at its onset, the investment group that owned the hotel decided not to uh, have just a small percentage of rooms be designated to the poor and unhoused, but make money on the government dime, get market rate for single room occupancy while housing a population that has been the center of much discussion in a city embroiled in controversy. But why is the giant 600 room hotel at less than a quarter full? from the LA Times article. The historic hotel with its haunting reputation in 600 rooms reopened in December 2021 as a privately funded permanent supportive housing project with most of the rooms reserved specifically for those in the bottom 30% of the area's median income. It's open to any of the thousands of unhoused Angelinos with a government funded voucher. Many view the project as a promising new model in LA because of its size and flexibility. There aren't necessarily other projects like this, said Jet Doyle, former chief advancement officer of the Skid Row Housing Trust, which serves as the Cecil's building manager. In addition to the all-private capital financing, she notes that it's unusual for a landlord to be willing to accept any tenant-based voucher someone might have. And yet, a year later, two-thirds 
of the Cecil remain unoccupied. Despite how eager the owners of the Cecil are to fill the building, the problems in LA's homeless housing system run deep and are often out of the control of any one actor. In July 2021, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development awarded 70,000 emergency housing vouchers to housing authorities across the U.S., including 3,365 vouchers to Los Angeles and a couple thousand more to L.A. County. This means that there are more than 7,000 voucher holders looking for housing in the L.A. region during a time of historically low vacancy rates. The effort is part of the American Rescue Plan Act signed by President Biden in an attempt to help those most vulnerable in society as COVID-19 exacerbated their economic struggles. The housing subsidies are part of the federal Section 8 program and geared towards people and families who are homeless, at risk of becoming homeless, recently homeless, or fleeing intimate violence, sexual assault, stalking, or human trafficking. In July, the Times reported that after a year, only 5.8% of vouchers received by the city had been used. As of December 11th, that number had grown to 20%. Several unhoused people with vouchers described significant wait times with the housing authority after applying for an apartment, with some never hearing back. Months later, the Cecil is still encountering the same problem. ZB, the building manager, says he starts the process by submitting a request for the housing authority to inspect a potential residence unit, which often takes weeks to complete, even when it's scheduled to take place within days. Then the housing authority must submit an official offer before the tenant can sign the lease. Voucher holders are waiting two to five months to get the necessary approvals from the housing authority to move in after applying to live at the Cecil, ZB said. We are not aware of any EHV holders waiting as long as five months to get their rent offers, the housing authorities. Van Natter said when asked about the reports of long wait times, though he later noted that the emergency housing voucher office has been grappling with a staffing shortage and a large number of submissions. Given the delays with the voucher system, local service providers are utilizing pre-existing rapid rehousing subsidies to get clients into housing. Intended as short-term rental assistance and distributed by the county through nonprofit partners, the subsidies are aimed at getting the neediest people off the streets as quickly as possible and giving them as long as two years to find long-term funding solution or become self-sufficient. The eligibility rules are more limited than they are with vouchers. However, the recipients must already be in the system and working with the case manager. Several case managers interviewed for this article reported no delays in helping clients eligible for a rapid rehousing subsidy move in as soon as they decide they want to live at the Cecil. About 50% of the Cecil's residents have been able to move in right away with the help of subsidies, CB said. It's been real, real smooth and easy to get the clients in there, said Cindy Vigil, a housing navigator for Hope of the Valley Rescue Mission. Mike Neely, a former commissioner of the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, said what's happening with the Cecil is just another example of a broken system bogged down by bureaucracy, even when the housing is available and traditional obstacles to voucher holders, such as unwelcoming landlords, aren't a factor. Here you are with a really innovative and cooperative project between the public sector and the private sector that could work. And all that's required is cooperation from a city agency to be able to do the job, Neely said. L.A. City Council, remember, this is where people might get a little fired up. You guys know about Kevin DeLeon, the uh, L.A. City Council member that got. Right? L.A. City Council members Kevin DeLeon and 
Bob Bloomfield proposed a solution July 1st to try to fill the Cecil faster, a master lease agreement with the city of Los Angeles. Under their plan, the city would foot the entire bill for a number of rooms in the building, bypassing the red tape of dealing with federal government-funded vouchers. Outreach workers could offer housing to people on the streets and theoretically move them in on the same day. The city's Homeless and Housing Committee approved a motion to direct staff to look into how such an agreement would work and be funded, and it was passed by the city council on August 24th. There's been no movement on the plan since then, Barron said, noting that the turmoil in the city council and the recent election certainly didn't help. So I don't know if you guys have been following what's been going on in L.A., but um, recently Karen Bass, who's been elected the mayor of Los Angeles, wanted to have a meeting with the city council to extend the COVID uh, protections for evictions. And several city council members walked out in protest of the fact that Kevin DeLeon had walked in. Eventually, DeLeon left and voted from outside of the of the city hall corridor, but was still involved. So that's what I mean about political grandstanding. Why don't we have effective planning when we talk about housing for the unhoused population? We want to declare wars on crime and drugs. We want to indoctrinate poor kids of color into the armed forces. There is impeccable planning. As my good friend Justin Hunt says, I don't have the answer to these questions. But I would love to hear and see what y'all have to say. Leave what you think in the comments below on behalf of Matt, David, Pascal, M. Toussaint. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. We will see you in a few weeks. And we are out. out.